0: Welcome back to Plum Peeps, everyone. Furf and I are so excited to bring you a highly anticipated crossover event as we're joined today by Eddie and Todd, the co founders of the ICU Ed and Todd And knowing these two gentlemen look forward to a great discussion today, Furf, how are you doing?
1: I'm gonna get. I'm a little congested, a little under the weather today. I have a, a daycare virus that I'm dealing with, but I'm very excited to be here and I, neither hail nor sleet nor rain would stop me. So I'm excited to still dive into our topic. For those of you listening on the Ed and Todd cast, Christina and I are the hosts of poem Peeps, an educational podcast about pulmonary and critical care, uh, if you haven't heard us. And we're really excited to be podcasting again with Todd. Todd has been on the show before. Uh, he shared his wit and wisdom with us about sepsis and when we were at the chess conference. And we're really excited to be here with Eddie as well, so we can uh, dive into a cool a topic and a paper that they've both worked on. So we're really excited to be talking to you guys today.
2: Yeah, I uh, also have a little bit of a daycare illness. I think my wife is on like day 35 of symptoms, she says. Oh, so.
1: good. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, no, it's, it's certainly great to be here. For the palm peepers out there, like they said, Todd and I run the ICU Ed and Toddcast. We have a little bit of a more narrow focus. We focus mostly on ICU medicine and we bring the latest and greatest in critical care medicine and research. And I think Todd said it the best when we were doing our live show where part of the way you get better in critical care medicine is keeping up with evidence and reading papers, and our podcast is helping you read that paper. So we'll go through the introduction and the methods and little design quirks and take you through the results and end up with
3: what we think and how it impacts our practice. Yeah, I'm happy to be here also. I will say my kids are 17 and 19, and uh, I don't think you ever get out of the daycare virus problem. (laughs) Um, So don't think that just when your kid gets out of daycare, you no longer will have respiratory symptoms because I think they're ubiquitous. But uh, as Dave said, I've been on before and I'm always happy to be a guest on Pump Peeps and to collaborate with Dave and Christy. It's, It's a ton of fun and I always learn something when I'm here and I'm excited to be back. So we appreciate you guys helping work with us to facilitate
1: this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Eddie, my wife is also on like day thirty-five, and nothing feels you makes you feel more inept as a pulmonologist than just say post-viral cough can last for eight to twelve weeks. (laughs) Nothing we can do about it. Yeah, I I bet she loves
2: that.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Exactly. So as Eddie and Todd said, they really help dive into these trials. They, their discussion of Cape Cod about steroids for pneumonia is one that I like send out and give to residents and learners to say, hey, you should understand this trial. And so why don't you listen to this? They do a really nice in-depth discussion, but they've done a ton of them. They've also recently published their own work, the ACORN trial in JAMA, looking at cefepime versus pipercillin, tazobactam or Zosin for hospitalized adults. I, I don't know how you guys find the time to both do this and put out this like high quality literature, but it's awesome. The trial has been fascinating. I, I'm sure you guys have seen it's been spurring a lot of discussion online and I'm sure in medicine and critical care departments and journal clubs across the country. So we thought that if we're having a crossover event, we might as well highlight some of the work you did and dive into this uh, interesting article. Yeah,
2: no, it's really great. We want to, on our podcast, we want to try to stay away too much from work that Todd and I participate in because we don't want to like make it seem like it's all self-promotion. So when you guys approached us about a crossover event and about the ACORN trial, we were really excited to really give us an opportunity to talk about this because we're excited about it clearly.
0: Yeah, we are too. We were so excited that it, it happened to, to come out and we happened to get this episode together. And really looking forward to a discussion today from the both of you. Just as a quick reminder, the podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. There aren't any specific cases today, but if we discuss any patient examples, we will make sure that they're HIPAA compliant. So before we dive into some questions, great job and kudos on a great trial acronym. And Eddie, I hear there's a story behind this and hoping you can share that with us today.
2: Yeah, so for the poem peepers, we, Todd and I, on our podcast, we grade trial acronyms as just lighthearted and fun on a scale of one to 10. And we've been, I have been pretty harsh on a lot of trial acronyms. And so ACORN is antibiotic choice on, renal outcomes, where the N in ACORN comes from the middle of renal. Hmm. So that's okay. Pretty good acronym. I would say I would give myself in the seven-ish out of 10 range, but it was better. So originally the acronym was antibiotic choice on renal and neurologic outcomes. So the N came from neuro, but at, at one point during the development of the trial, we decided to drop neurologic outcomes from uh, co-primaries to a key secondary, and so the title of the, the, the project had to change as well. So it still worked. It's still pretty good, but uh, it,
3: it, was al- it was almost perfect, man. It was almost perfect. <laughs> I tried to push forward Acoro, but uh, Eddie didn't like Acoro as much. So we kept it as, as Acorn. The, the one downside, of course, Eddie, is that people don't think of kidneys when we think of acorns.
1: Maybe they will now. Maybe it'll be the new Yeah, you guys, yeah, Cora doesn't roll off the tongue just as much. Yeah, you were forced to downgrade in the sake of good science. Yeah, you didn't want to have your secondary outcome there.
3: I really wanted the acronym. I will say this. Some people ask us occasionally, how do you guys do trials of great stuff? And how do you come up with topics for your trials? And honestly, people, I think, at times, think we're like these brilliant people sitting in a room, and it's nothing like that. What it is, is Eddie and I, or people in our group will say, what did we argue about on rounds this morning? And what do we argue about because we don't really know all the information that we need to know about those topics. And of course, and this is a little bit of the background, but of course, we at uh, at our institution spend a lot of time arguing about broad spectrum gram negative coverage. And maybe we shouldn't use Piptazo. Maybe we should use Cefapine. Those patients RAS minus three, maybe we shouldn't use Cefapine. And honestly, uh, Eddie can Uh, talk if he came to this topic in a different way, but this is how I came to this topic was we argue about this a lot on rounds and nobody can tell me if there's a right answer. So maybe we should do a study and get some data on
1: it. Yeah. I think that's probably the best way to get a study is we should know the answer to this, but we don't have one. So how are we going to get it? And very applicable, which we'll talk about, very bedside applicable. That's a perfect intro. So just as a brief background for anyone who doesn't know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, cefepime is a common fourth-generation cephalosporin. Zosin or piperacillin tazobactam is a beta-lactam and beta-lactamase inhibitor, beta-lactamase being the most common resistant mechanism in uh, gram-negative microbes. They're used for empiric coverage for gram negatives for patients with sepsis or pneumonia or those at risk for pseudomonas. And the latest IDSA, ATS guidelines for what is a risk factor for pseudomonas includes in prior infection or colonization with pseudomonas, a hospitalization and IV antibiotics in the last 90 days, underlying structural lung disease like bronchiectasis or cystic fibrosis, which puts you at risk. Or if you are severely ill and you have a pneumonia or sepsis, if your local antibiogram shows that you have greater than 10% multidrug resistance or a high prevalence of pseudomonas, you may actually need one of these drugs and another uh, second agent, which is part of their recommendations as well. And then a general category for immunocompromised. And then, of course, we always think about severity of illness. You have a lower threshold to use broad spectrum uh, coverage for somebody who's in septic shock uh, and in the ICU, although this study included people both in the ICU and, and outside. Both these drugs have pretty similar coverage. Cephapem is often quoted as f- covering fewer gram-negative anaerobes, bacteroides and abdominal uh, sources being the most common. And so sometimes if there's a high suspicion for anaerobes, it's combined with flagyl as the most common add-on drug. But otherwise, they cover pseudomonas and they cover gram-negatives in a pretty similar fashion. And so then the choice is often, as Todd said, just throw up your hands or hospital dependent or institution dependent or cultural. And so this trial was trying to get at making that choice a little bit more nuanced.
0: Thanks for reviewing that. And I think most of us listening today have either ordered it or picked one one or the other antibiotics based on an order set that may be available. And as you discussed, Firth, the efficacy and coverage is very similar between the two and some of what some of the choice of which drug is used upfront is can be cultural or institutional, as you mentioned. But given the similar efficacy, we also have to consider what adverse um, effects may be known. Eddie, can you tell us a little bit more about the main adverse effects of concern and what was known or perhaps not known before the study came out?
2: Yeah, no, this ties a little bit into what Todd was saying about how did I come across this question? When I started as an intern for everything for empiric prospect or antibiotics was, Vank and Zosin or vancomycin and pipericillin and tazobactam. And then all of a sudden there was, was, a lot of retrospective observational studies associating Piptazo, particularly vanc and Piptazo in combination with risks of kidney injury. And at our institution, when I was training, I like saw this shift, this wholesale switch from using uh, Piptazo to using cefepime and then all of a sudden we started to see more and more patients who, of course, we see a lot of patients with ultra mental status and coma in our ICU. And now all of a sudden we were getting EEGs and our neurology colleagues were saying, well, the EEG read says, stop the Cethepine. And we, then we got introduced to this, probably a side effect that probably exists, but probably is also pretty rare of Cethepine neurotoxicity, which is a which can span a spectrum of presentation ranging from coma to agitation, but we were an uh, ICU, at least worried about some of the, the coma perspective of it. So we have some, we have some retrospective observational data, which has limitations by confounding and some publication bias that says, well, you can't use Piptase because of AKI. And now all of a sudden we have case reports and case series and anecdotal local evidence saying, well, can't use cefepime either. And so now we're stuck in the middle and so should we use. Meropenem as our empiric gram spectrum antibiotic, uh, carbapenem, and every ID steward who's listening to this podcast, there they just puckered a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that's that's how we came about with the, the idea for this study.
0: Thanks so much, Eddie. I know I feel like everyone's not bring, not bringing out the meropenem right now. Sure. It's too early, but I, I will think
3: add, Monty, I will add that that these are big enough potential adverse effects that the FDA has weighed in on both of them. So there's actual warnings on Piptazo for renal failure and warnings on cefepime for neurotoxicity, especially in, re- in patients that have renal failure and dose adjustment and that sort of stuff. And so it's not we looked into this because uh, the first question always is this a problem at our institution only and everybody else mm-hmm. has this figured out? Or is this actually something that's more widespread? And I think and people can provide feedback if they they, they have differently. But I think this was pretty widespread where people struggled with this because there are FDA labels saying you should be concerned about maybe potentially some renal failure and or neurotoxicity with one or the other of these drugs. And I think that makes it even more applicable to our clinical practice.
2: Yeah, and this really, was like clinically pervasive, at least the thought. So I think cyphipine neurotoxicity is probably not that common, but We had a a time that I went on service and we came on to service of 10 patients existing. And if you look through their charts, five of them mentioned cefepime neurotoxicity or the concern for cefepime neurotoxicity. And some of them switched to meropenem as a result of that concern, because at that time we weren't using Piptazo as frequently. So it, it was a real, it was really clinically pervasive and it was impacting our clinical care. So...
3: Eddie and I had a couple laughs during the ACORN trial where we had our neurologists read an EEG as consistent with cefepime neurotoxicity in a patient that was in the Piptazo arm, uh, (laughs) not even getting cefepime. And Eddie would be like, they're not even getting cefepime. What's going on here? Yeah.
0: But I think you both bring up such great points. And I feel like I spent a lot of my time in our oncology ICU. So coming in with a lot of neutropenic fevers. So I- personally, would tend to go cefepime route versus vancomycin and vancomycin, but I think we'll go through some of the implications of the study and whether or not my practice pattern will change. But Todd, I'm curious for you, prior to the ACORN study results being out, how did you make the choice between the two agents for gram-negative as well as anti-pseudomonal coverage?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, we did ID Journal Club at ID Journal Club yesterday Yeah our institution, and at the end, and it was the ACORN trial, and at the end of it, the ID folks asked me, they said, Todd, how has this changed your practice? And I admitted, it was the first time I really thought about truly my practice, I had admitted that me initially making the decision of Piptazo versus Cephapine doesn't really happen that often because I work at an institution where I have trainees under me and they make that decision. And I'm a guy when I'm on service where I think there's some art in medicine and if you're doing something that's reasonable and I don't know that it's wrong, I'm like, okay, maybe I would have done that differently, but I'm not going to just change just because my name is on the door and and I would think that I would do it differently. So the initial decision I, I I didn't make very often, I think because I'm old and cefepime actually I don't think was even a drug when I was training in residency. I think I tend to use more Piptazo. But Oftentimes the house staff were like, we started this patient on cefepime and and I would be like, that's reasonable. Then where the decision really happened was if I thought I needed to change the drug. So if the patient got renal failure, I would say, I know that it's may not be the Piptazo, but we should just change off of it just to make sure. Or that patient that has neuro findings or is in a coma and I don't know why I'm like, yeah, just get rid of the cefepime. We don't, then we don't have to worry about it. And so that was where my decision on these came in and it really was based off of, Did I think there might be any possibility at all of it being an adverse event? And then if the answer to that was yes, changing off of it. Yeah,
1: that totally makes sense. And yeah, totally right. Very rarely am I making the upfront in fact, recently I was working in ICU where I didn't have a resident and I had to adjust a bank dosing and I was like, Oh, I remember how to do this. <laughs> it took me a while to, to recover that skill set. But yeah, but then you offer something on rounds because you're discussing it and you're like, Oh, this could be interesting and like, yeah. oh, it adds to our data set now. So yeah. before we go into ACORN specifically, I think it's important to understand the trial design, which we'll talk about more. Uh, and this is a pragmatic trial design, which I know you uh, at your institution have done quite often. We had Matt Semler on the show previously talking about pragmatic trial design in the context of ARDS. Um, but Todd, for our listeners who may not be as familiar, can you to walk us through what a pragmatic design trial is and then the advantages of it or any disadvantages that come up that we should consider?
3: Yeah. So first, a little bit of a joke that runs around in our group, which is that lots of people use the term pragmatic to what we term crappy trials. (laughs) Uh, And they didn't do something. They didn't collect some data that everybody wants and they just didn't collect it. Or they have a bunch of missing data or those sorts of things. And they say, oh yeah, it was a pragmatic trial. And we go, no, that's not a pragmatic trial, right? That's just not good study design and not good study conduct. So for us, pragmatic means that Uh, You're trying to do it with as little research-specific interventions as possible. So the stuff that you're studying is being um, used in clinical practice, and it's part of people's clinical practice, and the outcomes, that the way you're doing the interventions are as they're implemented in clinical practice. The inclusion-exclusion criteria, in an ideal world, there would be inclusion is everybody and exclusion is nobody. And you try and get as close to that as you possibly can to make it as generalizable to all the patients that we take care of. And then the data that we're collecting are data that are hopefully already available as part of the patient's medical record. So we're not trying to come up with some special outcome that requires 57 blood draws and special lab procedures and that sort of stuff. We're trying to use data as our outcomes that are already collected. Sometimes that stuff in our trials, at least sometimes that is Those are data that are already in an electronic medical record, but we also use other data streams. For example, our infection control folks have a lot of data that aren't specifically, I guess they're in the medical record, but they're not easily extractable from the medical record. And we will use them for drug resistant data that we have to report to authorities anyway, and so we have already collected them in our healthcare system. And so for us, that's the pragmatic part of it is to try and make it as similar to clinical practice and encompass as much of clinical practice as we possibly can.
0: Thanks, Todd, for sharing that. And I think really a great setup for the trial that you and Eddie did, obviously with other team members as well. But Eddie, with that background that Todd just provided, how was the ACORN trial set up to answer the question about cefepime versus piperacillin-tazobactam?
2: Yeah, so there's, I think there's a couple of things that go right into what Todd was saying about this trial being pragmatic. So the first part of it was we wanted to try to match our clinician's workflow. So at the very beginning, if a patient met the inclusion criteria, they, we had a REHR set up to have an interruptive alert that said, Hey, looks like you're ordering cefepime or piptezo. Do you think this patient would be reasonable for enrollment in the ACORN trial, which just assigns that choice randomly? If so, just hit accept and it'll lead you to an order set that tells you which arm that got randomized to. So uh, this, uh, I, so one of my other hats is informatics. And after the ACORN trial finished, I had a bunch of providers come up to me and say, we really miss the interruptive alert for the ACORN trial because uh, they didn't, it was easy for them to not make the decision and just let it go up to the randomization. And that was the first time I think in informatics history where someone said, hey, we really miss that that
1: pop-up. Yeah, Yeah. you don't often hear that with BPAs or anything like that.
2: No, never. This was, it wasn't just that we were okay with the BPAs, we miss it. So I think that just shows us that we uh, matched our workflow pretty well. That's for the enrollment on the back end, we ended up uh, using outcomes that were using things that were normally gotten in the HR. So our primary outcome was AKI on an ordinal scale where zero was no AKI, stages one, two, and three were stages one, two, and three for the KDGO AKI creatinine criteria. And then we thought that death was worse than any stage of AKI. So that was assigned an ordinal level of four. But for those criteria, we just, just use creatinine. And that's something that you could argue about choosing wisely, we should probably get less. But the unfortunate truth is that we get a lot of creatinines, And so we had a pretty good Gauge of creatinine levels as the hospitalization proceeded. And then from, we also looked at major adverse kidney events within 14 days, which is a composite of doubling of your baseline creatinine, which we had. New renal replacement therapy, where if you get dialysis in the hospital, that's recorded in the flow sheets, or if they died in the hospital, which is recorded. And then from a neurologic perspective, we looked at delirium and coma free days which uh, we define delirium as having a a positive assessment on the CAM ICU and coma as a negative four, negative five on the RAS scale. And these are routine nursing assessments. So for all of our patients in the hospital, RAS is recorded every 12 hours. And so it's not something that we had to have like a specialized
3: research nurse to go around and collect. I will add that, that, and you had asked a little bit about this, Dave, in the downsides of pragmatic trials. Because we're trying to enroll as many patients as we can and be as generalizable as we can in clinical practice, we also have a little bit less of the boundaries of what clinicians can do. And what that ends up with, and people have asked us a lot about this, is you end up with a proportion of patients where after a couple days, the clinician says, I know this patient was randomized to X, but I really want them to have Y. And we don't know exactly why that may be in every single patient. but in the pragmatic way of doing these trials, we let that happen because that's part of clinical practice. It makes it harder for us to see a signal and it makes it a little harder for us to sometimes truly test the hypothesis that we're trying. But the trade-off is that we get a broader population and more patients enrolled uh, because we don't have inclusion exclusion criteria. Eddie talked about the pop-up at the beginning. There also was a pop-up when they would change off of the antibiotic that would ask them why they were changing off of the antibiotic. So we had some data. It wasn't just that they changed to the other one. Anytime they discontinued it and it may be they would say therapy is finished. We don't think we need this anymore and we're just stopping it. Perfect. But but there was another pop-up. I suspect they didn't tell you that they really missed that pop-up though, Eddie. No, no one mentioned
2: anything. So I'm yeah. going to say that they missed it yeah.
3: they otherwise.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting, and we'll, we'll get into it with your results, but I love like the, some of the pre-specified sensitivity analyses you had to address that question of, like, oh, how long were they on the trial intervention, which is just a little less strict than you would have in a, a typical randomized trial. But then it was, it was very real life. This is how we take care of patients, and so it helps answer those questions. To that end, I, I really love the pragmatic trial design idea, and I think more institutions should do it. And I think that they some of those institutions don't understand exactly how it gets you know integrated into practice so it's great to hear about the BPA it sounds like the clinicians really liked it I'm curious if there were any other challenges as you want to get this up and running with like pharmacy infection control ID do people put up a big fight to doing something on a broad scope like this or is it or is your institution pretty used to these types of trials at this point
2: I think I could start there I think Part of it is that our institution is used to doing these types of trials. But part of it also is, I think, that people recognize the question and also experience the frustration that we described earlier in the podcast. And so people were interested in doing the work to get this question answered. But also, I think something that doesn't get a lot of glory when you're talking about trials is the setup and the buy-in from all of the stakeholders. So we went around to our divisions of hospitalist medicine, ID, surgery, pharmacy, emergency medicine, critical care, and we gave presentations to say, hey, this is the problem we see, do you see this problem too? Okay, great, this is the trial we're doing and this is how it's going to work. So we had a lot of buy-in from the get-go or really close to after we started.
3: Yeah, I think a a big part of it is engagement from key stakeholders on the front end. Mm -hmm. And the ID folks, as you talked about, our infectious disease colleagues were key stakeholders and they were agreeable to testing this because they said, this is a real question we need to know the answer. And so they were on board and we tried to do that as much as we can on the front end. Eddie spent, he's underselling it a little bit. He spent a lot of time in the early parts of the trial where somebody would either say this patient's excluded and you had an exclusion that essentially was, I know the right answer. Right, Eddie knows a lot of the guidelines now for a lot of non-critical care uh, infections because he would go look up the guidelines and say, how do we know that this is the right answer? There's no right answer here. Or the number of times that he would call me and say, but the guideline says you can use either cefepime or Piptazo, right? Why do they think that only one of those is an option? And also, and this is important too, when you do pragmatic trials, because remember, in these trials, the person essentially enrolling the patient and doing the intervention is the clinician. It's not a research personnel. And so getting them to understand that the worst thing you can possibly do is randomize a patient, see what they're randomized to, and then say, no, I don't like that and change them to something else. We're better off if you truly think in your mind this patient needs X to just say, sorry, this patient's not eligible and we're not gonna randomize this patient. That's That means it's not quite as generalizable as we would like but it doesn't hurt the internal validity of the, or bias the internal validity of the trial. And Eddie and I and other team members spent a reasonable amount of time getting people to recognize that so that we have as high fidelity and internal validity in the trial as we could.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That education and outreach sounds so important. I feel like I was saying medicine that we're All skeptics of medicine, except of our own knowledge. And so everybody's skeptical about a change, except for things that they quote unquote know. And so getting them to buy in, I'm sure was extremely helpful.
3: Yeah, it's a key part for sure.
0: Yes, I feel like y'all did so much work to, to get the trial up and going and now we'll say the trial's in place. And Ferf and I have talked before on Palm Peeps and other episodes about the first step with the trials to see if the randomization worked well. And you alluded to some of this, Todd, as well as if the intervention was received by patients as it was intended. Todd, can you share a little bit of what did the cohorts end up looking like and how did the randomized interventions turn out?
3: Yeah, so I think uh, Eddie may think differently so he can disagree if he wants to, but I think we were pretty happy with the patients that we had enrolled. It was a pretty broad population and Eddie and I are home are critical care people, obviously, but if you look at this, the vast majority of the patients actually don't get admitted to an ICU. They actually are admitted to, they have to be admitted to the hospital. That's obviously one of the inclusion criteria, but they aren't admitted to the ICU. And so we knew that was going to happen, but didn't know exactly how much that was gonna happen. And it's about 20%, 20 to 25% of the patients that end up being admitted to an ICU and the others are, are not admitted to the ICU. And then we spent a lot of time talking about the kind of elephant in the room here is, should we enroll patients that already have renal failure? Why? Maybe we should exclude them because they already have renal failure. But in talking with all of our colleagues, both our nephrology colleagues and our infectious disease colleagues, it, and I think this is still largely true, It was really unknown what the mechanism of causing renal failure was in Piptazo if it caused it, and whether that was it causes renal failure in patients who don't have renal failure, or whether it was the patient that's starting to get a little bit of renal failure, Piptazo just makes that way worse. And if you don't have any renal failure, Piptazo's okay in you and similarly with neurotoxicity and cefepime. And so we decided that we weren't going to exclude patients that were in coma or patients that already had baseline renal dysfunction at enrollment. And you can see, if you look at table one, there there are patients, it's 10% of patients have stage one renal failure, 10% have stage two renal failure, et cetera, et cetera. So you end up with a reasonable number of patients. Let me see if I can do some quick math here. It's 30% overall, I think that that have no had renal failure at baseline coming in. And then the big subgroup that we wanted to make sure that we caught. And in fact, our DSMB was helpful in this regard because at the interim, they said, you guys are doing such a great job of enrolling and you have a, such a high use of co-administration of vancomycin that we think you should actually enroll even more to make sure that you have enough vancomycin patients that you can look at it as a subgroup. Because in the literature, at least with Piptazo, There was this question of maybe it's not Piptazo alone. Maybe it's Piptazo plus VANC that's actually what's causing the problem. And we were excited about the fact that almost 80% of the patients essentially in the trial got co-administration of vancomycin with their broad gram-negative coverage, whether it was cefepime or Piptazo. Eddie, anything to add on that?
2: No, I think Todd, you covered it. Well, uh, sometimes Todd likes to use a lot of words where a few words do trick. <laughs> and so basically the DSMB said that we need a power for our, our code administration of vancomycin subgroup, And though it's a subgroup and you might say, oh, that's, that's hypothesis generating and uh, like a normal trial. We were powered for that subgroup, which I think is really something to
3: highlight. That's great. Eddie, we're going to have some listener that's going to count my number of words and your number of words and then report back to us who was more verbose. <laughs> that's great. I welcome that.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're here for the loquaciousness, Todd. You, you bring it to bone babes if you want. <laughs> <laughs> So that's great. So we have two comparable groups. We have this high co-administration of vancomycin, which really helps us answer our true clinical question. As Todd alluded to earlier, you guys had some crossover, but median course of antibiotics is three days, pretty solid, and a large cohort that had a longer course. I'll take a minute to say, and I mentioned it before too, I just love the pre-specified sensitivity analyses that you said. You anticipated this problem and said, we're going to do an analysis that just looks at people with the longer course. In addition to the total analysis, we're going to look at a, a intention to treat analysis and, and per protocol analysis. Really love all of that. I think sensitivity analyses like that really add to the validity of these findings. But before talking more about it, Eddie, I was just hoping you can walk us through the primary and secondary outcomes uh, between the two cohorts.
2: Yeah, no, just a point on the sensitivity analyses, uh, it's the the great thing about peer review uh, for everybody, but like the bane of the author's existence is these peer reviewers are so smart and they have all these questions. And so we had a lot of great sensitivity analyses that we pre-specified, but then after the fact, based off of what our reviewers had mentioned, we had just so many sensitivity analyses. So I really do think that in the end, we ended up slicing the data in every way to try to make sure that our findings were robust. So
3: the It's, not, it's app- not a universal, but it's pretty well established that our group in general doesn't do a ton of post hoc sensitivity analyses. We try and think of them ahead of time and then we do them and then we say, okay, this is what we thought of ahead of time and that's what we have. So, in the manuscript, for example, if you see something that says postdoc, it means that it was a smart reviewer that said, Hey, what about this? And we said, Oh, we can do that analysis to answer that question. That's a really good question. And then we end up doing the analysis. And it's not pre specified because we weren't smart enough to think of it, but we did it because the reviewer was smart enough to think of it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's that's how you end up with, I think it's five pages or six pages long, one of the tables in the supplement. That's how you end up with that. Who's counting,
1: though? Yeah. Right. Right.
2: Um, for, the, for, for our primary outcome as a review, we used AKI on an ordinal scale, zero is no AKI, one, two, and three are stage one, two, and three AKI, four is death. And we found between the groups, it was about 75-ish percent patients never experienced a new or worsening AKI by day 14. And I, I, I won't read every single, every single outcome on each group, but we ended up finding that there's no difference between the groups, cefepime or piptazo and there was an odds ratio of 0.95 and a 95% constant interval that spans one 0.80 to 1.13. No significant difference in AKI. This bore true in all of our subgroups and effect modification. I think that's figure three in the table, the forest plot. We looked at kidney injury. So we said, hey, we might not said, necessarily care about creatinine elevations. What about like clinically important outcomes? That's why we did the major adverse kidney events by day 14. And we similarly found no difference between the groups. It was an absolute difference of 1.4% and a composite interval that spanned zero. So 1% to 3.8%. The other secondary outcome that we said was a key secondary outcome for us was the delirium and coma free days by day 14. And this, we actually did find a difference. There was the odds ratio here was 0.79 with a constant interval that ranged from 0.65 to 0.95. So it didn't cross one there. And so this is actually a little bit confusing and, and Todd freely admits that he still sometimes gets confused. What this means, so an odds ratio of less than one here means that there were more days free of delirium and coma with Piptazo. So that means if you take out the some of the double negatives and otherwise that we saw more
3: delirium and coma with, with the cefapine group,
2: which is congruent with what the hypothesis
3: would be. Yeah. Eddie's just making fun of me because as we are doing these, they the, the which group is better, is doing better and might be favored flips across one, depending on what the actual outcome is. Right. And so I always asking, wait a minute, who does this favor again? What does this result favor again? How does this work? It's just, that, it's just that more, usually is like, oh, you want more of something, or
2: uh, sorry, less, like you'd like less mortality, less, less AKI, less this. But for this outcome, you want more days free of whatever right. you're talking about, more days free of the ventilator, more days free of delirium and coma. So the, the directionality of our odds ratios flip,
1: mm-hmm. which makes it hard. And I like on your four spots, it tells us very conveniently, <laughs> favor Cephepi and favors so <laughs> which really- That was,
2: that was intentional.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of those four spots, I'm just curious if there were any subgroups that popped out to you guys that that made you think a little bit about uh, certain patient populations. I noticed in the non-septic subgroup, there was it still wasn't significant that we had to worry about kidney injury, but the lines looked like it trended in that direction. Any subgroups that you think it was important for the readers to take note of?
3: I think we talked about VANC. Obviously, we were really concerned about the vancomycin subgroup. I think Some of our colleagues, uh, some of our surgery colleagues were very interested in the surgery subgroup as opposed to the medical subgroup. And then I think two, and we also talked about the different stages of baseline kidney dysfunction that we thought might help better explain whether this is a de novo injury if it's happening versus a worsening of something that was already present. And then as it's come out, people have started asking questions. One of them, as you brought up, is what about the no sepsis group? This is a hard group for me because we adjudicated sepsis on the back end, but ultimately to come in, somebody thought you needed antibiotics. And so it's not like the doc on the front end thought you didn't need antibiotics, but was giving them anyway. And so how do you implement that into practice? And I still don't know exactly that I know the answer of how to implement that in practice. And then one thing that you won't see on here that have has been a question is what about Patients that were really worried about the anaerobic coverage, and as you said, uh, Dave earlier, the cefepime has less robust anaerobic coverage. And in fact, in and we don't know the exact numbers. We're getting them from the medical record, but in a, a proportion of the patients in the cefepime group, they also got flagyl because if there was a big concern for potential anaerobes, then cefepime may not be appropriate enough coverage, and cefepime and flagyl may be needed. And so there's some question about. What about potential anaerobic activity and in the patients who you're worried about anaerobes in or grew anaerobes in or got anaerobic coverage with cefepime added to, or sorry, flagell added to cefepime, what does the the effect look like in that population? And, And that's not in this report. That's, I think, to be coming down the pipeline.
1: Yeah, yeah. I meant to talk about that specifically. I think that data out of Michigan by Dr. Chandaraj and Dr. Dixon looking at uh, anaerobic exposure in VAT patients and like even one dose of anaerobes is seemingly what they looked at has this difference in mortality, which is pretty fascinating thinking about the uh, effects on the microbiome. So it's interesting that you guys know, are already thinking about that. and You have some baseline data. Is that uh, next on the pragmatic trial design uh, docket or are you looking back at the data you already have to try to get some answers?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like directly next, we're going to look back at the data we have, but I, I don't know. It is really fascinating. That paper is really interesting in the way that the combined some translational work, and then some work from their EHR into one really nice paper. It is a, it is something that's provocative and we want to look at. And Dr. Dixon has reached out to us asking that question specifically. Cool.
0: That's great. A lot of things to look forward to. I think given this, Firfin, I think this is such a great study question that y'all both thought of, great study design. And from the results, it's pretty clear about the no impact on kidney injury, but the slight neurotoxicity associated with cefepime, which is which was done in a real-world clinical setting. And I think I have two questions for you, and Todd and Eddie would love your comments on them. Now, Todd, when you're back in the MICU, you're on rounds, Are you gonna, how are you gonna support this data to the decisions that you're making and what you're teaching with house staff? And interested just to hear from either of you, has the results changed your personal practice or the general institutional practice at your respective institutions?
3: Yeah, I think uh, a couple answers there. One is that for me in clinical practice, I, I think it means I can be more comfortable not changing somebody's PIPTAZO if the patient's starting to develop some renal failure, if especially if I think PIPTAZO really is the best choice for that patient and not necessarily say, OK, maybe it's causing the renal failure. I don't know. Let's do something else. I can say, no, I really think this patient would benefit from PIPTAZO. We should continue it because it's unlikely that's renal failure is directly attributable to the PIPTAZO. The 7 beam neurotoxicity, Eddie will laugh about this, but we in our group argued about what does this mean? It's a signal, it's statistically significant. When you look at the mean difference in delirium-free days, it's not very big, but it also doesn't affect very many people. And so maybe it's bigger in the people that it does affect. And these are, the neurotoxicity are hard data to get. We have it in a pretty um, ungranular way. We don't have very good details on it. And I think it's going to be another one of the more detailed explorations that we do is we're going to try and look at those populations a little bit more and A, find out who are the patients that it really affects. Because as we talked about at the beginning, the black box warning is specifically for patients that have renal dysfunction and dose adjustment and we have great pharmacists at our institution that do dose adjustments. And so I don't think we have a lot of patients that we're getting an inappropriate dose, but maybe even with an appropriate dose, renal dysfunction is still a risk factor for getting it. And I think that would be helpful. And then at our institution, we actually have a pop-up at is it 48 or 72 hours, Eddie, that the pop-up is? It's 72. It's 72, At 72 hours that essentially says, hey, this patient's still on Piptazo and VANC, and it might cause renal failure. You should switch them off of that. And we're working, actually, to try and get rid of the pop-up mm-hmm. within our clinical system because we think it's probably not the most evidence-based pop-up based off of these new data and the evidence that we have. And Then the last part of this that is, I think, a bigger hurdle for us, but we have been charged by our institution. Our institution, when we do these trials, wants us to implement them, both in our practice locally, but also disseminate them and implement them across it. And they've asked us, how are you going to address these findings with the FDA and with the FDA's warnings and that sort of stuff? And we're still working on trying to navigate that terrain to get Engagement with the FDA and at least some better understanding of how, how does this affect the black box warnings that are on these medicines and what we should broadly disseminate as knowledge that the the bedside clinicians should know.
2: Yeah, no, I think Todd covered it. Uh, I've been well, on too, too many service. words, right, Eddie? Too many. Few words do trick, Todd. Yeah, I've been on service a couple of times since this came out, which at the time of recording has only been a month. So I'll let that sink in for a second. But I, and I don't know if some of this is like biased because, you know, obviously everyone at our institution who's working uh, with me as attending knows about the ACORN trial, but I've seen a lot more Piptazo being used since the ACORN trial came out. It's been closer to 50-50, whereas before it was really a lot of cefepime. I think that was the predominant and a broad spectrum antibiotic that we use for gram-negative coverage. I, but I've seen both. And for me, like, it's not me saying, oh, this patient's on cefepime, we need to switch him to Piptazo. I don't think that the data supports that. I think that's what a, some people think that I might say or my conclusion. I, I don't think that at all. But I do think that with this signal for the neurotoxicity, um, or sorry, the delirium and coma from with cefepime, it's something that I look at a little bit more. So if my patient is coming in with baseline renal dysfunction or baseline coma already, and they might have a risk factor for that or exacerbation of that, that I will think a little bit harder about switching from safepine to That's It's really, I think, that specific case, at least that I've come across in my practice.
3: Monty, can I use this opportunity to ask you a question? Please. So interestingly, as we are doing the trial, Eddie, you have to make sure that I'm clear on this because I always get it confused. Our BMT colleagues, told us that they didn't want to enroll their patients because there were data that cefepime is better. Is that right, Eddie? I think our practice has been cefepime is better, but I think there was data suggesting that there's harm with cefepime actually. Oh, is that right? In that population. I can never remember which side of it was. So we don't have great represent. It's not like we're a BMT hospital and we would have had 100% BMT patients anyway, but we didn't have as great of representation of our BMT population as we would have hoped because there was this hesitation from them. And so you commented about working in an onc unit, and I wonder with relatively less representation of oncology patients in the trial, how do you think this generalizes and does it change what you think you'll do it, specifically in that environment, not when you're in the general medical ICU, but when you're in the onc ICU?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And what my takeaway too, and I think you, you mentioned some of this Um, Todd, right? And I think the thing is, it's not necessarily switching from one antibiotic to another once it's already started. But I think my practice patterns will change if someone is coming in with an AKI already, that the ACORN trial will show that it's okay to use if that's indicated for this patient. So I would feel more comfortable starting that at the onset based off of these results. And then I think the cefepime neurotoxicity, I don't know what everyone thinks. I feel like when you say that sometimes, some people just put their hands up and was like, oh, is that true? Is that not true? But I think it is. And I think we anecdotally showed stopping cefepime on someone, their mental status did improve over time. I think that's an important thing to consider. Uh, I feel as our neutropenic fever order set, cefepime is the top medication there. Myself, or house staff may actually just pick that because it's the first one they see, but I think that there needs to be more education about the two antibiotics when choosing and making sure we're doing the best thing for patients.
3: Yeah, that's great. We know because we heard from some folks that, and we never, we're not in the ID world, so I don't think we necessarily had our eyes open to this, but we heard that there are Cefepime hospitals, and there are Piptazo hospitals, and they really are driven by just dogma that our hospital is mm-hmm. going to be Sefabim, or our hospital is going to be Piptazo. And we're intrigued to continue to have discussions with them and have follow-up with them to see how these results might change, whether they continue to be a cefepime hospital. And and the reason I bring that up is because I thought of that when you said we have a bunch of order sets that mm-hmm. essentially direct you to cefepime. You may not think you're a Cephapim hospital, but if you look at your order sets and most of them are cefepime, you might qualify as a Cephapim or a vice versa for Piptazo hospital. And it'll be, I think, very interesting to see if and how those practices change based off of these results.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I When I moved from residency to fellowship, it was a switch in a Cephapim to Zosin. I think we were in Zosin when I was in residency and then cefepime fellowship. And then when I would suggest Piptazo, yeah. People would say, like, oh, do we really need to escalate their treatment? And it was this just totally right. cultural thought that Piptazo is actually like a higher rung coverage than cefepime when yeah. really their spectrum of efficacy, aside from Arabs is essentially the same. You're using it for the same indication. So that cultural uh, influence really makes I
3: thought them. you were going to say when you suggested Piptazo, people were like, are you the devil? What is wrong Yeah. <laughs> people are like, yeah. they have hard thoughts about these things, right? right? right. You know, they're like, what? You want to kill the patient? What are yeah. you doing?
1: Yeah, they only say that to me when I suggest Avocazers or Baxers or something yeah. like that.
3: <laughs> yeah. At my institution, they think that to me when I suggest an aminoglycoside. Yeah, <laughs> an aminoglycoside at all, and I'm like, what about an aminoglycoside? And then you get that look of, you want this patient to die?
1: You? Yeah, <laughs> you're,
3: like, really you're like, wait, no, it's a real antibiotic. People use it.
1: Yeah, and in fact, in the guidelines for double coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was a great discussion. Thank you guys. I think a lot of our listeners will learn from the ACORN trial. I know a lot of people are still discussing it. And hopefully they have great takeaways. Uh, we would like to wrap up the episode with just one either learning a takeaway point or just one final word. Mine is, I actually just really loved your comment, Eddie, about the interruptive alerts and how people find that helpful. I think they are so demonized in our healthcare system as something that is to be ignored and just adds extra clicks. But it's cool to hear that in the right context, they can be used uh, uh, for efficacious practice and for research. So uh, I really like that. Christina, anything to, as a final word?
0: me. Uh, no, just a really fun time um, today that I've had. I think just going back to what Todd said at the very beginning, right? This question was stemmed from just being on rounds and not having great evidence to support one um, recommendation or the other. And just a, the pragmatic design that was done, it's really just bringing everything to the bedside. So just love that aspect about this.
1: Eddie? Uh,
2: why, why waste time say lot word when few word do trick, Todd? <laughs> I, I don't think I could not just make another plug for informatics. Get to know your local informaticians. They, We don't bite uh, we can do a lot of good for you. What Todd was mentioning about, like, oh, you might not realize it, but your order set has Cephapim in it, and that really drives your practice. That's informatics, right? Informatics can, the goal of informatics is for you to not know that they're doing anything and something like sneaky, like an order set, not sneaky, but something like in an order set and what kind of presets, what's pre-checked, what shows up to you, how you search for things and how that comes up. Those are all things we talk about in informatics. Okay.
3: Yeah, I think for me, I think, first of all, once you get the results and you get to talk about the results, it's a ton of fun. And talking to people outside of our group about the results is always a ton of fun. And I love getting other people's takes. So, Monty's take of, and I never even thought of this, Monty's take of, in general, when a patient comes in with renal failure, we tend to push towards cefepime because we don't want to give that patient Piptazo on top of their renal failure. And I think these data suggest that we actually do have a real choice there and we can choose whichever one we want. And thinking about uh, talking about the trial with smart people that aren't in our group always opens up new thoughts and new ideas and new ways to interpret it. And and I think that's the best thing about clinical science and clinical medicine and the overlap for sure.
1: Truly. Thanks everyone for listening to Pulp Peeps and the Ed and Toddcast. And we'll see you at the next episode. Have a good one.